Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. Well, I'm excited to announce that, as of this week, Tales to Terrify is officially open for story submissions. So what does that entail, you ask? Well, if you're a writer of horror or dark fiction, that means now's your chance to have your work read by one of our phenomenal narrators and featured on an episode of Tales to Terrify. We accept stories up to 10,000 words long. The more terrifying, the better. So, if you're a writer of dark and disturbing fiction yourself, or you know someone who is, dust off that manuscript and send it our way. We'd love to catch a glimpse of the blackness that lurks in your imagination. For more details about our story selection criteria and how to submit, head over to talestoterrify.com slash submissions. This week finds us in the state of Idaho. Or does it? When I started doing my research for this episode, what popped up pretty early on, and quite regularly too, was not at all what I expected. Turns out, there's a surprisingly popular theory out there that Idaho doesn't actually exist. The theory relies on three simple questions. Do you know anyone from Idaho? Have you ever been to Idaho? 
And do you know anyone who's ever been to Idaho? Based on that line of questioning, I have to admit, I can't personally vouch for the existence of Idaho. Apparently, the theory says that Idaho was created solely as a fictional border between Utah and Canada, and to help protect Montana from the state of Washington, whatever that means. So if there are any Idahoans listening, first of all, are you sure you're from Idaho? And second, what's it like living in a fictional state? And if you're still convinced you're from Idaho, I dare you to prove it to me. Email, Facebook, or Twitter. If I don't hear from you, I guess I'll know the truth. But for now, I think it's only fair we give the state the benefit of the doubt. Not much of a story there if we don't, is there? Pocatello, Idaho, which we'll also assume actually exists, is the largest city in Bannock County. But it wasn't always that way. Long before high-rises and paved streets, the area was home to the Shoshone-Bannock tribes. Life wasn't always easy, but the nearby Snake River provided clean water and good fishing most of the year. And local game was plentiful, too. But in the 1800s, western expansion began to roll into Idaho in earnest, bringing with it first explorers, then settlers. And those new visitors to their land weren't always welcome or particularly polite and respectful of the Bannock Shoshone's claim to the land. Tensions between the tribes and the ever-increasing number of European settlers began to grow in frequency and intensity. A number of major skirmishes between the settlers and the Shoshone occurred near a large, irregular outcropping of boulders near the banks of the Snake River. The path that led between the rocks was a dangerous leg of any journey, a place practically made for an ambush, earning it the nickname Massacre Rocks, or sometimes Gate of Death or Devil's Gate, by the settlers. While having to contend with aggressive newcomers trampling through their land and disrupting their way of life wasn't easy to say the least, when drought struck, things became even worse. Much worse. The waters of the Snake River had shrunk to a slow, murky crawl, framed by high, dusty riverbanks. The salmon, the Shoshone's main source of food, were all but gone. And the deer and pronghorn that had once gathered in numbers to drink from the cool waters were nowhere to be found either. Even the wild crops they foraged were dry and withered. People sometimes went days without eating, and when they did find something, there was never enough to go around. The children cried almost constantly from the pain in their bellies. Defeated and desperate, the Shoshone elders gathered to form a plan. I imagine the first person to suggest it did so sheepishly, afraid of being ostracized but not wanting to leave any possibility unexplored. Their situation was too dire. And desperate times, well, they call for desperate measures. Either we need more food, he said, or we need fewer mouths to feed. The elders sat in silence for a moment, 
while the full weight of the statement sunk in. If there was more food to be found, they'd have found it by now. We may all die of starvation anyway, someone said. Then another voice spoke up. We should spare the children. Spare them the pain and suffering of slowly wasting away. No one responded. No one moved. But their stillness and downcast eyes were agreement enough. The next day they gathered the tribe. While many parents cried and wailed, holding their frail children close, no one could argue. No one fought back. They carried the young children to the river, waded with them into the slow, muddy waters, and held them under. Too weak to struggle, the children stopped breathing quickly, and their bodies were released to drift downstream. But even with lungs full of water, the children didn't die. Under the water they began to morph, to evolve. Their skin became pale and slimy, and small slits opened in their necks, transforming into gills. The skin between their fingers spun up like silk to web their hands, and their legs fused together into a fish-like tail as spines grew from their backs, forming sharp ridges. And their eyes became black and cold and glossy. Eventually, the rains returned to southern Idaho, and slowly the vegetation and animals returned as well. The tribe survived, but so did their guilt for what they'd done, for the cost of survival. Sometimes the mothers of the drowned would return to the riverbanks to sit, to be closer to their lost children, to thank them for their sacrifice. But as they sobbed, tears coursing down their cheeks, inevitably a sound would rise from the water. The sound of a child emerging from beneath the rolling waters of the Snake River. A sound, it said, that you can still hear today if you venture out to massacre rocks. Sit by the river bank, especially at night, and through the burble and rush of the river, there's a good chance you'll hear it. Water splashing, and the faint sound of a child crying, or maybe even laughing. As you peer out from the bank, is that something in the water? It looks almost like a small body, a child. Whatever you do, though, resist the natural temptation to wade into the waters. Despite their appearance to inexperienced eyes, the water babies of Massacre Rocks are far from helpless. But they do love a good trick, especially one that ends in death. Anyone who makes the mistake of entering the water is likely to be pulled under and held down by slick, scaly hands. And just before your final breath is swept from your lungs by the rushing water, you feel sharp teeth pierce your skin and tear your flesh as they begin to devour you. Water babies, 
The name sounds so innocent, doesn't it? I don't know about you, but I feel like I'd take a bloodthirsty great white shark over a pack of carnivorous dead infants any day of the week. Now, let's sink our teeth into a story of our own, shall we? We've got one tale for you this evening, which comes to us from Saris Nikita. Saris Nikita is a writer of horror and science fiction out of Oakland, California. Interests include cooking, fostering rabbits, the spotted hyena, and Vince Gilligan. Dislikes include chocolate, peanut butter, the month of June, and Wes Anderson. She thanks you for listening to this episode of Tales to Terrify. Children of the Night, join me for Saris Nikita's Full, first published in Dark Moon Digest number 32 from Perpetual Motion Publishing. Debs puked six more times since Aaron and Cecil left for the lunch buffet, so when a stewardess knocks on the door with a Coke and a Dramamine patch, Deb wants to thank her with almost the same urgency as the anesthesiologist who'd shot her a spine full of epidural halfway through her labor with Cecil. The stewardess squats next to Deborah. Ma'am, I'm just going to put this behind your ear. Deb is lying with doughy legs sprawling through the doorway of the cabin's tiny bathroom. Her nightshirt is bunched up around her waist, a pair of large floral panties in vivid display. The marigolds on the panties are as big as kiwi fruits, stretched oblong across Deb's large ass, and her sweat-dampened nightshirt is pinched in the creases of her midsection and wedged beneath the flaps of fat hanging from her upper arms. The whole cabin reeks of vomit, probably because the toilet is full of it. But Deb no longer has enough strength to hoist herself up high enough to retch into the bowl. The stewardess jabs her finger into a spot just below Deb's hairline. The Dramamine patch sticks there, pinning a strand of her hair beneath it, slightly larger than a lima bean and too tan a color for Deborah. For the last several hours, Deborah has been dry heaving into a plastic bag. At one time, the bag contained trail mix to distract Cecil on the long plane ride from Milwaukee to Fort Lauderdale. Aaron had raised an eyebrow and asked with barely masked contempt, if she really thought they should be teaching their daughter to cure boredom with food. Deb replied that trail mix was healthy, and that Cecil was only four, so nobody should be worrying about her weight anyway, or she'd end up bulimic by kindergarten. But Deb knew this wasn't about Cecil or the trail mix. Aaron just wanted to sting her. She had deceived him by putting on the weight. She had tricked him into a sexless marriage. In Fort Lauderdale, they had boarded the Royal Gingham, the Royal Gingham was a celebrity-style cruise ship, with your budget in mind. The Royal Gingham was fun for the whole family, and with a variety of activities for the kids and private getaways for mom and dad, there was sure to be something for everyone. The Royal Gingham served three hot continental buffets daily, featuring gourmet dishes such as prime rib, award-winning cocktails, and sinful desserts. 
The royal gingham was the solution to the wintertime doldrums, and when was the last time you treated yourself? Deb hoped the royal gingham would be where she proved to Aaron that she wasn't going to be fat forever. They could go back to the beginning, when he looked into her eyes instead of just at her face, and they'd fucked every time she shaved her legs because Aaron is a leg man and the smell of women's shaving cream turns him on. On the deck of the royal gingham, Deb would strip off her terry cloth robe and her husband would see that there were 23 pounds less of her, which was worth the side effects of the Korean ephedrine pills hidden in an emptied-out box of Kotex in the sock and underwear pocket of her suitcase. She would rub lotion over her chest and hips. She wouldn't look at Aaron as she did this. She would pass in front of his deck chair, spreading sunscreen over her décolleté. She would dip her legs slowly into the pool. She would be nonchalant and then demure. Instead, the royal gingham was where Deb discovered she was devastatingly prone to seasickness. That was four days ago. Between mouthfuls of spicy bile, Deb catches whiffs of raisins and carob chips. Hunks of vomit are dried into her unwashed hair, and a single peanut husk dangles from a damp clump of her eyelashes. She wants to die. Deb still doesn't move, so the stewardess reaches over and flushes the toilet. The Dramamine isn't working yet, but when the stewardess cracks open the can of Coke, Deb feels the tiniest bit better. She thinks about lifting her head, but when she tries, the sinews of her neck click and grind like a bicycle changing gears. Awareness begins to return, and she realizes that her whole body aches and reeks. It dawns on her that there is a stranger in the room, and now she is miserable and also ashamed. She reaches down and tries to tuck her nightshirt into something, but the only place to tuck into is her marigold panties, and that defeats the purpose. The stewardess doesn't acknowledge any of it. She's young and pretty and wearing a floral perfume that will make Deb heave as soon as it wafts close. The stewardess has seen it all. Sometimes this helps, says the stewardess, pouring an inch of coke into a royal gingham mouthwash cup and pushing it close to Deb's face. This new object in Deb's peripheral vision flares her nausea, and another measure of retching tears through her, the muscles in her throat digging for something else to put into the trail mix bag. I'll just leave this here so you can reach it. The stewardess pokes a straw into the can. The rest is right here on top of the toilet. If you need anything else, you can call 222 on your phone there. If you need the infirmary, it's on the left, right past the vending machines. And when you're feeling like eating, you can ask the dining hall attendant for some saltines and chicken broth and one of those electrolyte drinks. Just ask for the green plate special, okay? She stands to leave. Okay, ma'am? Deb murmurs. Her mouth tastes monstrous. She chooses not to fully resurface to awareness. When the cabin door clicks shut, a sound punctuated by the triple beep of a key card, Deb pulls herself up on the rim of the bathtub and fumbles the straw into her mouth. She sucks a long, long draft. Caffeine does help nausea. That's why headache pills have caffeine, and why tea helps the flu, and why stewardesses offer people with motion sickness coke with their Dramamine patch. But Deb's reaction has nothing to do with the healing powers of Coca-Cola. The cracking tab is as familiar as the banging of her childhood screen door. Each night, she and Aaron drink Coke with their supper. To Deb, the sound is a comforting promise, and not only of those first sweet, burning belches. The sound is another promise. 
It's time to eat. Deborah's never been a waif, but she hadn't really begun to put on weight until after Cecil. Her hips had always been generous. In high school, she'd been one of those girls with a ripe, sensual belly and thighs poured into elastic spiked jeans. In college, she'd been forgiven an amount of pudge because it granted her a pair of large and marvelous breasts. When she'd married Aaron, she'd done so in a size 8 dress, albeit after a week spent drinking nothing but lemon juice with honey and cayenne pepper. The combination gave her a terrible urinary tract infection, dampening their honeymoon considerably. But until Cecil, she was never, you know, fat. And it wasn't really even the pregnancy itself that was the trouble. She'd gained only 12 pounds from start to finish, and most of that had been the weight of Cecil herself. But during her months of breastfeeding, she'd found herself eating voraciously, and hadn't been able to slow down, even after she and Aaron managed to interest Cecil in cream of wheat and pureed pears over the lure of the breast. She couldn't stop. She'd felt as though her body was a careening railroad car over which she'd lost control. In the particularly destructive period between Halloween and Easter, she'd gained nearly 40 pounds, and the count just kept climbing. The numbers on her scale plateaued around 285, and there she'd stayed, unable to nudge the needle more than one or two pounds to her credit. In the office of an HMO therapist with a difficult Indian surname, Deb had cried and attempted to solicit a prescription for diet pills, but he just gave her the same old bullshit about revisiting expectations of her body and the importance of setting reasonable goals and how to start with something manageable like walking and then work up to 30 minutes of moderate exercise and eat whole grains, drink more water, try yoga, blah, blah, blah. He acted as if Deborah was confused by her weight gain. She wasn't. She knew exactly why the pounds kept piling up. She just couldn't stop eating. It wasn't her fault. She never felt full. In fact, she thought about food all the time. Sometimes before bed, Deb would stand in the glow of the open fridge and devour a cold block of lasagna or a mound of shredded cheese folded into a slice of bread. After, she would feel stuffed, but not satisfied. Never, you know... Full. At first, Aaron pinched her bottom and squeezed her extra close when they kissed. He told her she was beautiful. He stroked her bolstered breasts and admired the new tightness of her jeans. Then the sex had stopped, and Aaron didn't do those things anymore. Cecil's preschool phoned. Could she please pick her daughter up from the infirmary? Cecil was running a fever, and the nurse had spied telltale red spots speckling the child's belly. Deb never had the chicken pox as a child. Her father had been in the Air Force, and she'd managed to dodge outbreaks by staying on the move. When she caught the virus off little Cecil at age 36, Deb's symptoms were severe and debilitating. Pustules crowded her lips and eyelids, crusting her left eye shut while she slept. Her tongue swelled because of the pox sprouting on her tonsils. She developed a low, sickening headache that sank into her neck and shoulders, like the cold claw of a framing hammer. On the twentieth day of her illness, Deb was shuffling into the bath when she caught her nude image in the mirror. The belly of the woman in the mirror didn't protrude as much as Deborah's. The woman's thighs met each other much closer to her crotch than Deb's. The pads of fat around her hips were measlier, and the ass not quite so ample. <laughs> 
Still nude, Deb hurried to the garage and pulled the bathroom scale from behind a box of crud-covered barbecue utensils. She pressed the button with her toe and saw that adult chickenpox had taken 16 pounds off her, shaved it off her waist and buttocks like a cheese plane biting into a block of white cheddar. 16 pounds. As Deb's health improved, there was a giddy grocery trip during which Deb registered the stares of neighbors and clerks as wistful envy of her figure rather than suspicion of fading pox scabs. Plain yogurt and lean cuisine were purchased. Cupboards were sanitized of Cheez-Its and Star Crunch. She gazed at the woman in the clingy red shirt on the boxes of Special K and felt a swell of sisterhood. But as her health returned, so did her appetite. Terrified of losing ground, she'd bought a gross of Korean diet pills off the web. The pills removed her appetite, but they also sped her heart and made her feel shaky and sweaty. Her eyes became dry, so that episodes of rapid blinking became a necessary habit. Her saliva was thick and salty. She smiled at the reflection of her body, noticing changes. Talking Aaron into the royal gingham had been difficult. Finally, Deb had resorted to using Cecil as leverage. Don't you want her to have just one memory of mom and dad taking the family on vacation? Are you kidding? We went to your dad's beach house for two weeks this year. No, I mean a real vacation. Someplace far away. One where everything is different. Don't you have memories like that? I have six brothers and sisters, Aaron replied flatly. We didn't go on cruises. But Deb had persisted, and Aaron had finally told her, yes, go ahead and buy the goddamn tickets. Put it on the credit card. The MasterCard, not the Visa. The first thing Deb saw when they boarded the Royal Gingham was the women. The girls. Smooth, copper-skinned girls with cheap swimsuits that looked fantastic, cupping the curves and swells of their 19-year-old bodies. Deb's face grew hot. The television ad for the Royal Gingham presented a family, a dad with a haircut from a J. Crew catalog and long blue slits for eyes, a mom with a sun hat and a white cover-up and sturdy dimpled knees that reassured Deborah of their commonalities. Deb had planned to entice her husband out of leaving her with a couple tipsy nights in bed and a certain amount of clandestine oral sex, but instead she had led him to a feast of copper skin and firm young asses. One of the girls saw Aaron looking and made eye contact with him. She smiled. Deborah leaned away from her rolling luggage and threw up the first of many times. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. The coke and the Dramamine are so effective, Deb says a prayer to God, thanking him. She dozes, showers, then wants a green plate special. But when she tries to leave the cabin, the door sticks as if something were caught under the jam. Deb puts her weight into it and hears a soft little rip and then a crunch. It sounds like a carrot snapping. Deb scrapes the door open enough to wriggle her shoulders through. Surprisingly, the thing that had been jamming the door is a baby carrot. Deb reaches for it, but when she picks the thing up, it's too warm and too soft. It's sticky with something brown and Deb understands that she is holding a severed pinky finger in her hand. The moment is so surreal that she doesn't start at the realization the finger is Aaron's. Instead, the knowledge hits her as a flit of disgust that her husband's nails have grown over long again. She panics and pushes his body into the crack left by the half-open door. As her hips squeeze through, she feels the soft resistance from some other part of Aaron's body, still pinched in the jam, and she knows he is dead. There are other dead people, too. Deborah is facing a hallway littered with them, skin and hair and scraps of neon-colored polyester crumpled like theater floor popcorn on her way to the dining room. Deb wonders if she's dreaming. Maybe the Korean speed pills have caused her brain cells to die off in clumps the size of freshwater pearls causing her to hallucinate that she is trapped on a cruise ship full of dead bodies and that her husband is dead and maybe her daughter too. At the surface-level concierge, two young men and a woman are dead. The woman is sprawled over a stack of towels, dead thighs still tanned-looking beneath her navy-blue uniform skirt. Her eyes and mouth are both open, and Deb can see white puffy things the shape of jelly beans clinging to the woman's tongue and throat. The dead man blocking the entrance to the dining room has dandruff and skin the color of liverwurst. Deb's eyes are drawn to a small movement in his open mouth, which also appears to be stuffed with cotton. Did he try to speak? Could he be alive? One of Deb's ankles cracks loudly as she drops to her knees next to him, but when she touches his hand, he's as dead and clammy as, well, as a dead clam. Deb detected a hint of movement within the cotton gagging the man's throat. A puff of air must have moved it. Sharp words from behind caused Deb to start. Yep, she's got one too. Deb turns her head. 
The voice belongs to a black woman, alive. She's holding the hand of a little girl whose face is puffy and pink from crying. There's a man with them, a white man with a red face who looks like his blood pressure might be sky high. He has the look of someone who goes to a lot of board meetings where he fills the room with too sweet aftershave and wears shirts that pinch his neck too tightly. The black woman's fingers brush against Deb's neck just behind her ear. You ought to be thankful that boats make you puke your guts out. It's that Dramamine patch kept him away. The woman stops speaking, and suddenly everyone is silent and looking at Deb. So she says, I was asleep. I woke up and everyone was dead. Nobody says anything, so Deb continues talking, as is her instinct when a moment of silence calls for filling. I broke off Aaron's finger in the doorway. He's my husband. He took Cecil to the lunch buffet, but she wasn't with him in the hallway. Now I'm looking for her. For my daughter Cecil. She pauses, finally beginning to sift through some of the information around her. What did you mean when you said they? The little girl starts to cry again. The white man says nothing only stares at her with the wide eyes of someone who has just put his face through a spiderweb while walking in the dark. Rhonda jabs her chin in the direction of the ship's railings and says, Look over the side. Deb creaks to her knees, peering down into the churning sea that the royal gingham continues to slice its way through. The surface of the ocean is covered with a flotilla of reddish-brown seaweed, like the sea has gotten itself all scabbed up with road rash and crawling all over the seaweed, covering nearly every square inch, thousands and thousands of white spiders pick and scurry and crawl over one another, each one about as large as Deb's thumb and with legs so fine they appear translucent in the sparkling Bermuda sunshine. They don't like the drugs, that's what we're thinking. The white red man speaks at last, Fear-filled voice dripping with a Tennessee or perhaps Kentucky accent. It's the seasickness meds that's keeping them out of us. They can sense it somehow. Smell it, maybe. The man can discern no change to Deb's face, and so he continues. I'm Harold, and that's Rhonda. He nods in the direction of the black woman. And we've both got the patches like you. He squeezes the little girl's shoulder. And this is B. She's been taking the drops every four hours or so. It seems like when it gets close to four hours, they, uh, you know, they start to come for her. B hiccups into a sob. Her face crumples. Deb's head begins to feel numb, a feeling that seeps down her body like cold syrup until it reaches her belly, where it becomes a foreboding so fierce it wrenches her already well-wrenched gut when she speaks again, her voice is shrill. I don't know what you mean when you say keeping them out of us. I don't understand all this. I was asleep. She looks down at her hands and finds she is wringing the finger, wearing the too long nail at the tip, the nail beds of her thumbs and forefingers sporting crescents of her husband's clotted black blood. I was asleep. Deb watches a lot of television. From this, she knows that the next step is for one of these people to emerge as their leader. Either Rhonda or Harold will take charge of their small group, and they will tell her what to do. She will be expected to follow along, which she can manage, 
but someone must take the lead and begin making decisions. The sun emerges from the puffy nautical clouds. A sighing sound comes from the liverwurst-colored dead man. Bee's eyes roll toward the sound, and Deb's follow, sliding over the surreal, corpse-covered deck. Despite the sigh, the prone man still does not look alive. His flesh is slack, and his chest does not rise and fall above his bloated belly. But as they watch, his lips part, as if jostled from the inside, and a thick tearing sound emerges from the caverns of his body. The flesh of his throat bulges as if he's trying to regurgitate something absurd, a tennis ball or a potato. Then torrents of baby spiders emerge from the man's mouth. A high-pitched cry builds in Deb like an alarm, splitting the silence with her hysteria. There are so many spiderlings, and they are so small that their individual bodies are indiscernible. They form a ribbon of thin jointed legs and abdomens and compound eyes flowing from the dead man's gullet and over his swollen tongue like soap bubbles spilling from an overfilled wash basin. A handful of wayward spiderlings pick their way from his nostrils. The squirming, opalescent procession measures several inches across as they disembark from the chin of the dead man and march across the deck of the royal gingham into the parted lips and ear canals of the dead teenagers at Concierge. Hot acid rushes into Deb's throat, and her eyes dart so wildly that she is no longer taking in information. She drops Aaron's finger onto the deck of the ship. Listen, says Harold. We're going to search the place and gather up all the meds we can, especially seasick meds. And in 15 minutes, we're putting down that lifeboat and we're firing the flares and the distresses and whatever else we can find, and just hoping someone finds us before we run out of dope. We can't stay on this ship. Rhonda's nodding in agreement. Deb feels her head nodding too. A calming flush rushes through her head and neck. Relief that someone has taken charge and is telling her what she should do. Gather up whatever you can, says Harold. Meet back here in 15 minutes by the lifeboat. Sunscreen, blankets, water bottles, whatever's useful. His eyes dart briefly toward the river of spiderlings marching into the sexy concierge workers. But especially the drugs. Deb rushes back to her cabin, and there in the bathroom she sees the stewardess's mouthwash cup. It feels like an artifact from another lifetime. She catches a ghostly whiff of perfume. Then, clear as a bell, she hears the stewardess's voice in her mind. If you need it, the infirmary is on the left, right past the vending machines. The infirmary? Yes, there'll certainly be drugs there. She flies past the vending machines and reels for the infirmary door, marked with a large red cross. Deb reaches for the knob, but before she can grasp it, the door opens and Howard's considerable bulk emerges. They're locked. Goddamn things are locked up in steel fucking cabinets. Who the hell would try to steal Dramamine? Howard kicks the door as Deb tries to push past him. Let me look. I said they're locked, roars Howard, pressing himself against Deborah and forcing her from the door. Stop wasting time, lady. Go get supplies. Deb stumbles back, eyes wide. Well, go already. Jesus Christ. Deb turns and races back to her cabin, closing the door behind her and breathing heavily against it. 
Hot tears blur her vision, a little girl's reaction to being scolded. I just wanted to look, she mutters bitterly to herself, letting anger rail fear and shame out of the picture. What's the problem with just a look? It's just a look. She continues muttering as she rips the thin comforter from the bed. What's the big secret anyway? Just wanted to show what a big man he is. A big man? What's the big secret any- Deb stops cold, one hand grasping a plastic grocery sack filled with Cecil's snacks. She won't need them anymore. The other gripping a fistful of t-shirts and panties. The big secret, she whispers. Now that the thought has entered her mind, it cannot be stopped. It bulldozes through her brain, images of Howard, that pig Howard, stuffing his pockets with tablets from a decidedly unlocked cupboard heaped with piles and piles of boxes. Of he and Rhonda and whatever the hell the kid's name was, laughing and sharing, swallowing the tablets together, standing confidently among the corpses, as fountains of spiderlings give the trio ample berth en route to another dead gullet. Deb furiously upturns her suitcase onto the naked bed. Her fingers fumble across a small box of Kotex tampons, one that feels much lighter than it should. She opens the box and the contents spill out. Foil-backed pills within are shaped like rounded triangles. They are trapped inside neat plastic blisters and emblazoned with Korean instruction she cannot understand. Deb stares at the booklet of pills. She thinks of Cecil and the dead copper-skinned goddesses growing ripe in the sun. She thinks of Howard and Rhonda and the kid. They're laughing at her. They're calling her the fat lady, and they're saying she's nothing but dead weight. Deb decides that she does not want to share with these people, these others. She decides that she owes them nothing. No. Deb wants to stay alive. Deb wants to see Aaron again, and Cecil even though Deb knows already that they're dead. She wants to mourn them with many hot tears and feel the embraces of those who will speak in whispers of her loss and say that she is strong. Deb rips off the foil backing and three dozen lemon-colored tablets spill onto the stretched linens. Deb separates the pills into two piles. The first pile she pushes into her right sock. The second pile which will later be estimated at about 1,200 milligrams of minimally cut ephedrine, goes down Deb's throat with a Coca-Cola chaser. The pills stick in her throat, chalky. She gags, hacks, and polishes off the can of Coke. No spiders in here, she thinks. Better find another neighborhood to put down stakes. Quickly, Deb returns to the deck. Harold and Rhonda are preparing the lifeboat for descent. I couldn't find any medicine, she says breathlessly. The dry and immense clot of pills continues to scrape down her throat. I brought food. Deb holds up Cecil's snack bag and blanket. Harold nods. He is helping the little girl into the lifeboat. Deb climbs in after her, stumbling over the small gap. She's beginning to feel uneasy on her feet, and her nerves are beginning to quake. Deb feels the lifeboat descending. She does not want to look over the side, where she knows billions more spiderlings writhe and clamber on their seaweed flotillas, waiting. Deb's heart feels as though it is starting and stopping, thumping against the bones that hold her together. She sees a little girl perched on the edge of the boat, 
sucking her thumb and looking at her. The little girl looks nothing like Cecil, but Deb would like to hold her anyway, would like to smell her hair and pretend. She reaches out for the girl, and the child lets out a loud hiccup, followed by a sob. Deb looks at the girl's face, and it is a swirling mosaic of blue and white. Deb's eyes find focus on the girl's mouth, a dark hole rimmed by pink, translucent parts. She stares at the hole, and it grows larger and darker until the teeth disappear and there's only more blackness. Deb cannot breathe. She cannot lie down. She must keep moving, but she can't do that either. Deb does not know what to do with herself. The girl's sobs intensify, and Deb can see that inside the black mouth there are cottony balls, pulsing and growing, and she knows that soon the horrible thing will come, although she can't think clearly enough to remember what the horrible thing is. Deb lunges forward with a slaughterhouse noise, her hands curling into fists seconds before they make contact with the girl's small chest. The girl flails, grasping at the cleat of the lifeboat, too late. As she tumbles from the boat, her head makes contact with the side of the ship and her neck breaks, so that she's dead before she even reaches the surface of the sea. Deb feels arms on her, feels the throb of shouting in her chest. She feels her heart ripping her throat like a jackhammer, and a terrible heat is boiling from her bones. She is being scalded by the suffocating panic of the world around her and the chemicals inside her. And then everything is gone and Deb is alone in darkness. Deb can only open one eye, and looking through it is like looking through her wedding veil. There's white. There's a beeping sound in this room, and clear plastic hanging from the ceiling like shower curtains, and the bed is made of metal. She feels comfortable, except for a pain in her private parts where a tube has been placed to help her pee. More tubes emerge from beneath her blankets and snake up to meet bags of fluids, clear, yellow, red. As she breathes in, there is beeping from a machine she cannot see. As she breathes out, the beeping softens. She can see people-sized things moving around her, but they're white and faceless, clumsy in their sterile suits. Deb wonders how long she's been asleep, she focuses her eyes on the bulging hemisphere of her belly and wonders with small panic how she has gained back all the weight so quickly. How the mound of blanket covering her stomach could possibly have grown so enormous. She would like to ask these things from the people in the sterile suits, but that will have to wait. For the first time in her life, Deb is feeling very full. That was Saris Nikita's Full, as read by Amy Paunessa. Amy Paunessa has been the producer and host of The Bloodlust, a horror movie review podcast since 2014. She has narrated stories for Knife Point Horror, Those Snowy Nights, and The Alexandria Archives. She's thrilled to narrate for Tales to Terrify, especially because she credits the podcast with reigniting her love of horror fiction. Amy lives just outside of Detroit 
with her lovely wife, two vicious 12-year-old attack dogs, and a fluffy orange cat who dominates them all. Thank you, Amy. Well, children of the night, the hour is late and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Support us on Patreon for access to ad-free episodes and bonus content. Visit patreon.com slash tales to terrify to sign up, or if PayPal's more your style, you can support us via the link near the bottom of our homepage at talestoterrify.com. And if you've got a minute to spare, we'd love it if you'd pop over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a rating or a review. Reviews are huge to a volunteer-run podcast like ours. It helps us expose more victims, I mean listeners, to our dark influence. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Pete Morsellino, Meredith Morgenstern, Julia Zellman, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we satisfy your carnal hungers with more Tales to Terrify. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.